Hello and welcome to this special edition of Salt and Light Radio. I'm Pedro Guevara Man. Today we're going to bring you some of our best interviews, artists, and songs from last season. We'll be hearing from author John McNichol about his young Chesterton Chronicles, and we will also be debating creation and evolution with Dr. Gerard Verschuren. We also listen to music from John Dawson and Ken Yazinski. Remember to write to us about anything that you hear on this program, radio at saltandlighttv.org, and visit us at saltandlighttv.org slash radio. We begin now with John McNichol. Now this week we asked, when was the last time that you read a Catholic book? And most answers involved nonfiction books, from Scott Hahn books to Theology of the Body to the Bible, and even Benedict's Light of the World and Jesus of Nazareth, and even a few C.S. Lewis. But not a lot of fiction, and especially not a lot of teen fiction. But those books do exist. So if you're a parent of teenage boys, for example, looking for a good adventure books with a Catholic worldview, you need not look further. I am now joined by John McNichol, author of the Young Chesterton series. John, welcome to Salt and Light Radio. Thanks a lot, Pedro. Really glad to be here. Okay, I'm hoping that people are intrigued because I have a really hard time explaining to people, you know, like one sentence, what, what these books are like. So how would you describe the Young Chesterton Chronicles? Well, the simplest answer in one sentence, I'd say the Young Chesterton Chronicles, is a Catholic-themed series aimed at young men. Uh, it's got aspects of science fiction, it's got aspects of adventure, it's got giant robots and things blowing up, and all kinds of other good stuff that I know I enjoyed as a young man. So. Okay, okay. so that's the, the science fiction adventure part I get. Where, where does the whole Chesterton thing come in? Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. Chesterton I bring in not as an adult, as many people remember him, yeah. as many people have experienced him. But I bring him in as a 16-year-old young man. Yeah. Uh, I transplant him to the United States so that the reviewer, the readers can more identify with him. And I bring in Chesterton in part because he offers uh, the chance for people to see the Catholic worldview in action in an adventure story. He's also counterbalanced by a person who was his real-life best friend, H.G. Wells, yeah. who basically had no sympathy for the Catholic faith at all. But it gives me lots of chances in between the adventure portions to have interplay between uh, the Catholic worldview and the secularist worldview. And it works out, it's worked out pretty well so far, if yeah. the uh, fans are any judge. No, that's good. And I want to ask you a little bit about that. But just again, sort of just to, so it's, it's G.K. Chesterton, but it's not really G.K. Chesterton because it, this is how you imagine him in this made up world uh, when he would have, had he been 16 or 17 years old. Precisely. Um, the genre is called, some folks call it alternative history. Some folks, the younger folks especially, call it steampunk. But basically what you have is uh, a character who is inhabiting the world that he created as an author. So the real-life G.K. Chesterton, one of his more famous characters is a fellow named Father Brown. I have him as a character in the right. novel as well. So things like that. <laughs> right, right. And, and then, I mean, and historically it takes place in the right time period of yes. when Chesterton would have been 16 years old. Exactly. But there are all so these... The late 1800s, early 1900s. I keep it kind of vaporous there just because I play with history a lot in the novel and uh, I have a lot of real and made-up characters interacting with each other and that gives me a lot of freedom to move and you know, the fans end up enjoying it too. Well, I have to tell you because when I read the first one, The Tripods, I was mm -hmm. confused. I think I had read a few chapters and then I started thinking, okay, is this the future? Is this the past? <laughs> Because you do combine, I mean, the whole science fiction aspect of it that makes you think like, well, this could be in the future because you have Martians invading and and, right. and there's this whole, you know, analytical engines that are steam powered, but they don't exist. They, I mean, they don't exist now. So, right. so that how much of that is made up and how much of that is in the world of uh, G.K. Chesterton? Well, basically, I do keep some things that are definitely real world. There are several of G.K. Chesterton's more famous quotes that I work in to his adventures. Yes. Um, one of his more famous quotes, for example, he says, any dead thing can go with the current. It takes a live thing to, to swim upstream. Right. And at one point, the young Chesterton, he sees a dead fish floating along in the water, and he says, you know, I'm actually going to work. I'm going to give it a try, hmm. even though I feel discouraged. I'm going to swim against the stream and survive. Right. But the things that I make up, um, 
most alternate history, they'll pick one point in human history and change one big event. And for me, uh, I picked the notion where a gentleman named Babbage, he would have made the first computer about a century early uh-huh. if he'd gotten enough funding for it. And so I change that particular event. And when you do something like that as an author, it frees up so many other deals. Uh, I was able to say, well, what would have happened then if the South had won the Civil War? How would that have changed the makeup of the United States? Right. And that gives me, say, a reason to transplant the character of Gilbert, as I've envisioned him, from Britain to the United States, where he ha- where he starts off at least having his adventures. Yeah, well, he grows up in the states, but then he ends up living in London. Um, That's correct. How did you? And maybe this is the the hundred dollar, a hundred, a thousand, a million dollar question. How did you come up with this idea? Well, the simple simplest answer I can uh, give you is. Well, uh, I remembered reading C.S. Lewis a long time ago, and he said that he wrote the books he would have read if he could have gotten his hands on them. Right. And as my boys were getting older, I started to look. I have seven children. As my sons particularly were getting older, I started looking for some type of reading material that would reinforce the values that my wife and I were trying to give them. Mm-hmm. And when it came to fiction, I found there was a really, there's a really good bunch of stuff that's aimed at girls, but there's not a whole lot for boys. So I right. thought, well, if, when I was that age and I basically found myself having to kind of skip over all the bad stuff in the books I was reading, what kind of a book would I have liked to have read? What kind of thing would have reinforced the values my parents were trying to give me? And mm-hmm. so I thought, well, what about this? What about this? Well, why not get a, one of the more famous Catholic authors and make him a character so that when the young people are older, they'll end up gravitating towards his real-life works, which is what I'd really like to see happen. Right, right. And, I mean, the way you weave in some of these values that you talk about, like, for example, uh, in, in the second book, um, uh, The Emperor of North America, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like, right, even right off the bat, there was this whole comment about eugenics that I thought, oh, that's interesting, and it's an interesting way to, to mention it without f- feeling like you're beating people over the head about pro-life. Or, or even exactly. uh, the whole uh, faith. There's a scene. Well, I think he's he's in the airship uh, with this drunken. Or I think Gilbert is, has been drinking a little too much. And there's this guy who's <laughs> challenging the whole uh, think about the church in the Middle Ages. And this whole little kind of just a few lines that it's like how you what you believe that you take on faith was an interesting way to bring that idea out. And even there was a, another segment where something about the rosary. The, the what why he. He might not even understand it, but Father Brown taught him, gave him the beads, and they've been useful. Um, so, so how did you, I guess the question, how do you weave in those ideas without making it seem like you're preaching to people? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, for me, I guess I just look again at what was effective for me when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. And uh, the folks who were the most effective at witnessing to me didn't sit me down and lecture me for 15 minutes. What they frequently would do is they would uh, just kind of tell me a little story illustrating a point. So when, for example, the character of Herb, who in real life, we'd call him a flaming racist today. Yeah. was very, very much so. Uh, I have a one scene you mentioned, I will say, with the rosary, where Herb is busily explaining why the Western European, and specifically the British European, is superior to all other races. Yeah. And he ends up essentially getting his clock cleaned not in a mean way. He doesn't get beaten up, but he is essentially shown that he is not superior to a porter who is of Chinese extraction. That's right. Who is saying the ro- who has a rose- set of rosary beads sticking out of his pocket. Yeah. So for me, that basically is a good way of linking and saying, you know, in real life, I've seen events like that happen. Most of us have seen events like that happen in real life. And if you just have a logical conclusion to a person's um, speech, if you have a logical conclusion to a person's actions. Usually that speaks way more than actually sitting a person down. Uh, I had one fellow who calls it the G. Davy way of trying to get a point across, you know, uh-huh. or Goliath. You can remember the old Davy and Goliath shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Goliath, the big dog, is explaining to Davy, gee, I don't think we ought to do that. And here's exactly why. If you actually show the, act, the realistic consequences to a person's actions, good or bad, uh, I find that that weaves in a much more believable uh, thought and a, basically a much more convincing way to get your point across. Absolutely, and it's, and it's, and it's action-based and not yes. you know, just a bunch of, somebody, bunch of people talking about an idea. No, and I think that's, that's very, very useful. Um, just in the little time we have left, you are authoring these books right now. You've finished the second one. I know you're working on a third one of the Chesterton yes. Chronicles. Yep. Uh, w- there are other books like these out there for, for parents. What would you recommend to parents who are looking for books like yours? 
Where do they well, go? It, sure, sure. There are a number of Catholic publishers that are doing stuff like this now. Um, I know that uh, Sophia was working very hard at putting out uh, various titles. Sophia My first Press, publisher yeah. for the Young Chesterton Chronicles. My current publisher for the Emperor of North America, Bezalel Books. You can mm-hmm. get them at Uh They're putting out a lot of fiction as well that's Catholic-themed. Uh, you can go to your local Catholic bookstore and look at that. If you don't, if you'd like to see a specifically Christian, but maybe not specifically Catholic, you have some authors like um, Stephen R. Lawhead, who looks at what they call high fantasy or um, historical fiction, where basically you know it's a realistic portrayal of the Christians as the good guys changing Europe for the better. Right. So those are some uh, places you can go for that. Okay, well, good. Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, I know we could spend all afternoon talking, and probably we will one day. Um, but uh, I, I hope that our listeners, a lot of them are parents. They have, I have two teenage boys, so this is, this is great. So I'm just going to the two suggestions, bezalelbooks.com, and also yeah, sure. look up Sophia Press. And, of course, you can learn more about uh, the work John is doing at his website, youngchestertonchronicles.com. I'm going to put that link on our site as well, saltandlighttv.org slash radio to make it easy for people to find. And I know that your books, John, are available at local Catholic bookstores all over, and they're also available through Amazon.com, correct? Yes, sir, that is correct. Well, thank you very much. John McNichol, it's been a pleasure uh, speaking with you today. Thank you so much, Pedro. Appreciate it. John McNichol, author of the Young Chesterton series. Hi, this is Sarah Hart, and you're listening to Salt and Light Radio on the Catholic Channel on Sirius XM. We all know about the language changes that will be implemented on November 27th, the first Sunday of Advent. The new translation required that there would be new musical settings for various mass parts, and so the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops, the National Liturgy Office, commissioned three new mass settings for Canada. And probably the changes that will affect people more are those concerning music. So to tell us about these changes, we are now joined by John Dawson, the composer of one of these settings. John, welcome back to Salt and Light Radio. Thanks, Pedro. It's good to be back. Yeah, so so how does that work? So there's a new translation? Yes. Um, w- which are the mass parts that that's going to affect, or that it affects mostly? Is it all the mass parts? Um, well, it affects, I mean, it affects the whole mass on, on very, to varying degrees. But right. the, the, the but big ones are really the Gloria and the, uh, the Holy Holy. Um, but okay. even the Holy Holy is really just, it's a, just like one word. One word. The Gloria was the big one. Um, I mean, that's very different. So, uh, so, so, because I know people, and already, I mean, there are there are cue cards in the pews, mm-hmm. um, but most people are not going to have to learn the Gloria because I presume that we're going to be learning the songs. Yeah, that was really the idea behind the settings. It wasn't so much that it was. Uh, I, I, the idea to, to sort of anticipate the change with some music, you know, Celebrating Song came out a while ago now. So that, that's the book? That's the book that the settings are in. Yeah. Um, I think the idea there was that people could start getting this music in their head a bit. You could start teaching the parishes, not necessarily the people. I think, if I'm not mistaken, um, even the head of Advent, um, there, there is permission given, at least in our diocese, to start using the but, sung parts. Yes, um, there is, especially... I, I, what I heard is that especially the Gloria, because, yeah. well, because you don't sing the Gloria during Advent. Precisely, yeah. So the people, yeah. So I think as of October 29th, oh yeah, um, it's that that is good to go, or maybe it's even earlier. I don't know, but um, you know, the idea was just so that you know people can learn these texts. I mean, you know, the, the mass settings as they were, as they are in celebrating song, are really meant to be tools to help usher in this change. Right. I don't think anybody's expecting these to necessarily be the only mass settings ever for parishes. You know, it's, no, no. They're they're a tool to help. Yeah. And, and, okay. And, you know. Um, well, can I ask you about that? Because I think there was I, I read a letter or someone sent a letter here. You know, like you know, one of these people that are like you know the the, the liturgical legalists. Oh. Yeah. It's like here's the letter from <laughs> Bishop, and this is one of the auxiliary bishops in Toronto, yeah. I guess Bishop Boissonneau. Yeah. Saying you know please. Basically, the letter saying, "Please use one of the three settings, plus the chant, the ISIL chant, or the or the chant, plus the ISIL chant." That um, th- that's right. Um, at least for a year, yes, for the sake of unity. Yep. And then people are taking that to mean you can only sing these three settings in Canada. 
for the first year, well, different dioceses are handling it very differently. You know, right. Some are mandating one setting for the whole diocese or composite settings. Um, okay. Uh, Toronto did it that particular way, and the idea was to that, you know, especially with the settings, I, I know not everybody's going to use mine, not everybody's going to like mine, and that's perfectly okay. Well, but your, yours is the youthful, the more youthful, so the guitar one. It's, yeah, for, for all intents and purposes, it's yes. the guitar one, it the was, guitar and it was meant to be, you know, useful for communities with that musical reality, you yeah. know, that there are, there is something to, to grab onto if you have a more rhythm section based choir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, but I know that, you know, uh, it, it's not the, the be-all, end-all of, of mass settings. I, I'm very proud of it. I think mm-hmm. it's quite good, but mm-hmm. I, I certainly know that it's a tool. And I think that's the idea, say, here's a year, use this to help get the, the text into the mouths of your assembly into the hearts of your assembly, yeah. hopefully, you know, and who knows, after years, some may decide to stick with the one they've chosen, and some may, you know, right away, will just jump ship and go to somewhere else, and I mean, there, these are the three in Canada, but obviously There's there are, there are other composers in, States, in Canada, yeah. but they're yeah. also the major publishing houses in the U.S., you know? Yeah. Yeah. So it's um So so and I know we at the beginning of the program we listened to the Gloria but can you give us maybe some uh, an example of what the difference is in uh in language from the old well we know with the old Gloria Well I think the refrain for mine is probably one of the the, the ones that stand out to me Glory to God in the highest on earth peace to people of goodwill. Right. Um that's a little different. <laughs> it is and that's those are the actual words cuz sometimes people with previous musical settings, they take some liberty with, with the language and maybe yes. that the that the Gloria is not written, correct me if I'm wrong, you're the expert, but the Gloria is not written as a, as a, w- with a refrain? No, it's not. And that's an interesting point. I mean, I, I think all three of the Canadian ones use refrain. They do. And, they do, and it's the same words. They all chose to do what you did. Yeah. And, and you know what's, what's strange about that is I recognize that the Gloria doesn't need a refrain at all. Um, but, I think it was a bit of a pastoral concession to the fact that at least people will sing something, you uh, know? Yes. Uh, at least that's how I was thinking of it, in the sense that they're going to grab... I think my refrain in particular is a very singable refrain. It is, it is. So at the very least, people are going to jump onto that, you know? Yeah. And, and so I, <clears throat> I don't think there's any... You're absolutely right, and, and I, I'd love to write another Gloria that doesn't have a refrain. But is there... Okay, let me ask you about that. As a composer, yeah. isn't there something about... Uh, I mean, the, the music, and I don't know if it's because of the pop culture influence, but the music that we are used to listening to is very much a verse, refrain, oh, verse, refrain, sure. and, and people are used to that. Yeah. And to go f- through a song that has no refrain is just, especially when the melody, there is no discernible melody either. Well, no, the, and the text isn't metered. you know. So, I, exactly, so, so it's, it's hard to... Uh, I think the equal. best example I've ever heard of what we call a through-composed Gloria has to be C- Stephen Somerville's. Um, uh-huh. I can't remember what the mass setting was, but every I think everybody's probably heard him. He just did a wonderful job, um, <clears throat> but it's really it's it's difficult to do, and the, and the text changes don't don't make that any easier. So, I think uh, refrain glorias are, are are helpful pastorally. But you're right; I think that's an important point too. And if you look at the other acclamations, they're very short. I don't have a lot of intros for any of those. They're no. they're quick, sort of you know. Um, they're just little hooks in and of themselves, and, and it's that same logic that people, we're in a soundbite culture. You know, if you want to get people singing anything, you got to give it to them fast. Right. Um, and, and that's not to ignore the fact that there's, you know, this is still liturgy. There's got to be formation and respect for what you're doing, but mm. there are cultural realities that, that you do have to take into consideration, you know, and, and I think that's one of them. And it'll be interesting to see how that whole musical dialogue plays out over the years. Right. Now, um, you mentioned something else about the, how, how singable the, the music needs to be, and I know that at least those parts, the Gloria, it, it's appropriate that the congregation sings the whole thing. Yeah. The Holy of Holy, it's appropriate that the congregation sings the whole thing. Yeah. Um, how important was it for you to make it, maybe not how important, but how difficult was it to make it singable, congregational? Yeah, it's harder than you think. I mean, there's a yeah. lot to be taken into account, and, and everything, did, you know, and some may argue if I if I succeeded in this or not, but I certainly looked at the range for mm-hmm. most of them, okay. recognizing that not everybody's going to be able to sing some of those notes at pitch, but it could also, you know, men might sing it down an octave, and it would sit comfortably for, yeah. for male settings. 
So it was trying to find a, a sort of place to set the melody that, that people could sing and arrange mm-hmm. that was comfortable for them. But it was also um, sculpting the melody, especially for the Holy Holy and, and, and uh, you know, note choices and uses of chromaticism and, and recognizing that you've got to do things, um, try and do them as musically as you can and, and make it possible for somebody who may have no musical experience to be able to get it. And it's, it really, yeah, it's tough because it's um, what, you know, they are, it, there's a certain um, sense that what I might sing stylistically as a songwriter may not necessarily translate to an assembly. Right. So you have to kind of take yourself and your own style out of the equation a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But still have some character to it. And that's, it's a bit like iconography in that sense. You know, you're, you're, you're writing huh. an icon. Yeah, But yeah, you yeah. have to kind of re- try and remove yourself as a composer a little bit. Interesting. And, um, at least that's how I was thinking of it. And, and like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, I don't really... I'm not going to release an album of music that sounds like my mass setting. You know, I write different kinds of things for my yes. own work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had to wear a bit of a different hat and think a little bit differently when writing for this task. Um, yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And and we are familiar with with the type of music that you that you write. Yes. Um, some, some of, of it's it, pretty strange. Some <laughs> of it's pretty strange, but at least you know, like the the. <laughs> <laughs> the stuff that you can sing, yeah, <laughs> it, it it's 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 very different, yeah, than than this mass setting. It's a little more syncopated, and and that's yeah. that's the tendency when you're when you're a singer songwriter, I guess as well. But that was one thing too, is rhythmically, you know, are you how syncopated are you? Yeah, because people don't, especially in this culture, they don't they don't get the syncopation. Well, sometimes. they feel it, they can't read it. No, yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. It's, it, syncopation. I remember that from when you know studying jazz, I mean, syncopation is always easier to feel than it is to read. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if people are reading a melody, then, you know, they, it, it, want, it probably should look pretty standard. But, yeah, yeah it's an interesting But you can challenge. also, sometimes you can read, read the syncopation in the text, and it's there. And it makes sense. And sometimes yeah. people, it's not in the music, but people syncopate it anyway, because that's the instinct. So I well, guess that's if the... you just pray and just speak some of those texts, like the Gloria, it's a very... Syn- I mean, English is a pretty syncopated language. Yeah. There's a lot of odd rhythms in it, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, cool. Um, I, I want to talk to you quickly about... the. Uh, you released a new song, because yes. you, your wife released a new baby. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I had to compete. <laughs> um, no, but of course you're a, you're a composer and you're having a baby, so of course you're going to write a song. Yes. Um, but you chose to write the song before your child was born. Yes. A song for my unborn child. What was that experience like? Yeah, it was really neat. It was, uh, you know, anybody, especially being my first child, I, I had no idea what to expect and still have no idea what to expect in the yeah. coming years. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of just wanted to write... Um, and it's part of an album. I'm working on a whole project that I'm doing of, of just kind of little daddyisms, you know, things huh. that I want to leave, you know, for my child. Things happen, you know, life gets funny, and sometimes you never really get to say some things that you want to say. Mm-hmm. And um, this song for me was just saying, here's the plan. I want to do the best I can for you. Here are some things. Every, each one of the verses is kind of like a daddy says this, you know, and, um, there's just little ideas within the lyrics, um, and the bridge is basically says that. Said, so, you know, I know this conversation might be more than a few years away, but it'd break my heart if those years come and go, and I'm just left with a list of things that I meant to say. Mm-hmm. So it's really that sense of just I just want to make sure I get this out now. You wow. know, Because before I know it, you're going to be 25. Yes, know? and before you know it, he will be 25. Yeah, exactly. So it was just, and and I thought the unborn was important uh, in another sense of the. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. pro-life element, you know, the sense that it, 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 I think there's an element to pro-life. I think it's very politicized, uh, but pro-life is about life. And I thought, you know, as Catholics, we want to, you know, we are pro-life, of course, um, but that there's a, a gentleness to this. You know, this is this is recognizing it before I've even met this child. This is a child of God, and yeah. and, and so there is that dimension to it. I think of recognizing that this isn't just uh, mm-hmm. something that, but this is still a person now, right but, you know, before they're born, you know? Yeah. Well, we're going to play that song just to end the show, so um, uh, looking forward to, to hearing it. Um, thank you, John. Thank you. It was good to talk to you again. Yeah, very good. So uh, John Dawson... 
composer of the Mass of the Holy Family, one of the three Canadian musical settings for the new English translation of the Mass. And you can purchase the new settings at cccbpublications.ca. You can also learn more about John Dawson and his music on his website, johndawsonmusic.net. And here now is John with his new single, A Song for My Unborn Child. Rest assured I will greet you when the morning comes And rest assured I will kiss you when the daylight's done With me here you're not so all alone With me here you're not so all alone Rest assured for all it gives you the world can take as much Rest assured that it can't take from you What's given you in love Though my love for you is yours and yours alone Remember love freely shown is freely grown Now I know that this conversation Hello and welcome to part two of Salt and Light Radio. I'm Pedro Guevara Mann. There is the idea out there that either you believe in the Genesis creation story or you believe in evolution. And if you believe in evolution, you can't possibly believe in God. This is not what the Catholic Church teaches. We believe that faith can never contradict reason. And that is the topic of a new book titled God and Evolution, Science Meets Faith. I spoke to author Dr. Gerald Verschuren earlier this week. Dr. Jerry, welcome to Salt and Light Radio. Most welcome. Now, um, this book that, you're, uh, that you've been working on, uh, God and Evolution, Science Meets Faith, why did you feel it was necessary to write the book? I, I, I learned during my experience in, in the Roman Catholic Church that so many people feel very confused by what's going on in our culture. On, on the one side, they, they feel attacked by, uh, by atheists, who uh -huh. are very often scientists, 
and they uh, they produce very popular books that put religion down and say if there is evolution, there cannot be any religion. Right. And on the other side, they, they feel attacked by, by people who, let's say, they come from, uh, you know, the more Protestant versions of uh, Christianity, like evangelicals and uh, Pentecostals, and, and they say you have to take uh, creation as the final answer to everything, which is true, mm-hmm. but they take the conclusion that there is no evolution. So right. they attack evolution. Okay. And Catholics feel right in the middle, which is unfortunately not in line with the tradition of the Roman Catholic Church. Okay. From, uh, from uh, Pope Leo XIII on, in the two centuries ago almost, uh, the Church has always said we, uh, we go for faith and reason, science, and religion. religion. Yeah. I want to I ask you about evolution and creation in a second, but first, can you then maybe explain a little bit more, what is the relationship then between, as a Catholic, the relationship between science and religion? Um, the Catholic Church has, has always talked in, in, in like the images of the Book of Nature and the Book of Scripture, mm-hmm. which, which dates back to yeah. St. Augustine. Yeah. And, and they say what, what you read in the Book of Scripture is revealed by God, our Creator. But there is also a Book of Nature. Mm-hmm. It follows the laws that God has instilled in this world. So those two cannot be in conflict with each other. Mm-hmm. They... Um, our Holy Father, the current Pope Benedict XVI, said, uh, if, if people tell you that if there is evolution, there is no creation, mm. or if there is creation, there is no evolution, that's an absurdity. That is literally what he said. Right. Because it, it goes against the tradition of the Roman Catholic Church, faith and reason. Evolution may be the way we, 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 we came here, but creation is the way everything came along, and we came from God. Maybe we came here through evolution, but we definitely, ultimately... Came from God. Came from God. So one, one is not exclusive from the other. Would you say then that, uh, as Catholics, we believe that faith cannot contradict reason? Correct. That's what the Catholic faith says. So uh, faith can never be in contradiction with uh, what, what science tells us. And science, if it's properly done, cannot be in conflict with what we learn from uh, our faith, what we believe in. There, there is no contradiction between creation and evolution. No. Okay, so, the, sorry, so then what do you tell those people who say, what do you mean, of course, did, did, either we were created in seven days or six days, or we were created over a period of, you know, 10,000 million years? I would say 10,000 millions of years. And, and if they say, yeah, but the, the book of Scripture tells us that it was done in seven days, then I always tend to ask them, um, do you realize that there are two creation stories? Genesis 1 talks about seven days of creation, but Genesis 2, the Adam and Eve account, doesn't talk about seven days. So why do you choose the first version and not the second version? Right. And and so somehow we, we cannot read... Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 as a scientific account. It's not the book of uh, nature, it's the book of Scripture. And uh, all that Scripture is interested in is in our salvation. It doesn't care about the science behind it. Right, right. Now, you're you're a human geneticist, correct? Yes, I am. Um, So you're a scientist, and and of course you're a Catholic. You've been a practicing Catholic all your life, I presume. So what are you first? Are you uh, a, a man of faith first, or are you a man of science first? I am, I'm definitely a man of faith first. Yeah. But I, I must say, during my studies in human genetics, uh, you know, I was indoctrinated by a lot of professors who have the idea that there is only science, and science has the whole story. And so I, I had to fight very hard to keep my faith going. That's why I'm so so involved with this process of creation and evolution. I, I, right. I know how hard it is for people when they hear about science and when they get indoctrinated by science, mm-hmm. they think there is no space for faith anymore. But, but faith is what we live from. I, I, I always say if um, I, I came here from God mm. and, and how, how I got here, that's a different story. Right. 
Um, did you ever go through periods when you were uh, studying, I guess, or, or you were younger, where you, that, that what you were learning in science really challenged your faith to the point that you thought, you know, not that, not that it challenged you that you thought maybe there was no God, but that it, that it got you to the, I guess, what was the one thing that got you to the point where you are now to understand that, that they're not contradictory? Um, I think when I, uh, when I graduated and wrote my thesis in, in, in human genetics, I, uh, I finally began to, began to wonder, uh, is this the whole story? And I, um, I, during my time at studying for human genetics, I, I must say I became very positivistic. That means the, the science is all there is, mm-hmm. and, and, and I forgot about my faith. Okay. But when I had time to reflect more on it, and unfortunately time in the lab doesn't allow you there too often, no. but when you get home, you say, isn't there much more going on? Mm-hmm. And that's when I started to wonder about things and, and say, why, uh, if, if evolution were really the full answer, then, you know, there is only one, one end for us, and that end is the end of the story. Right. But now, if there is creation, then eternal life is the light at the end of the tunnel. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I came to realize while I was there. I, I put question marks behind science. I say, what, where are the limitations of science? And that opens my view again for God and creation. Did studying, did studying human genetics, though, not uh, uh, make you wonder more about how complex the human... I guess the human body is, the human system is, that made you seek more outside of science? Did you have that experience? Not during my studies. No. Because, you know, scientists always try to reduce complex things to very simple things. That's the only way they can tackle their problems in science. Right. So, so you, you, you keep thinking, hey, it, it, it's really simple, but it isn't. Mm. It isn't simple. But th- that takes quite a while. You have to pull away from that academia, where everything seems so simple and everything can be solved by science. I know better now. Science is not a cure-all or a know-all. Right. Um, people like uh, Richard Dawkins, I, I hate to mention his name, but mm-hmm. he is the famous atheist who, who keeps saying, oh, science has all the answers. Yes. And, and I, I am, I'm very weary of that kind of slogans. It, it's a new religion. Right. Now, I, I, I hear that what you're saying is that people definitely need religion. So would you say that people also need science? Oh, yes. We, we definitely do need science. If, if we didn't have science, we, we, we would still be struggling with a lot of kind of diseases that we can cure now. Cancer could, could not be cured if we didn't know a lot about molecular biology, about genetics. Mm-hmm. So, so we need science. Each time you, uh, you pick up that phone, thanks to science. Yes. But, yes. but I also realize that there is much more to life. I, I always say not everything that counts can be counted. Science is good in counting, in measuring, in calculating. Yeah. But there is so much in life that cannot be counted and calculated and measured. Right. Now, the, the book, just go back to the book again, uh, who is this book for? Uh, this book is for, um, uh, for, for a very general audience of Roman Catholics. Catholics who, who just struggle with that fight, or presumably a fight, between science and religion. Mm-hmm. They, they have children at home, they come from college, they come from high school, they talk about evolution, and they have been indoctrinated with all there is is evolution. How, how do parents answer those questions? Mm-hmm. How do they answer the questions inside of themselves? Right. When they go to church on Sundays and on Monday they work in a lab or they work in a technical environment, how, how can we handle all of that? Right, so it's a book to give people tools to be able to have that conversation. Correct. And, and I want them to be strengthened in their faith. And, and I want them to know that uh, what the book tells them is solid Catholicism. Uh, I, I use a lot of quotes from uh, popes, from uh, famous theologians, from church fathers, doctors yeah. of the church, to just bring very much across that we are safe in our faith and that we have a long, very healthy tradition in the Roman Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much. Sounds like a, 
like a fascinating read. The only bad thing is that it's not going to be available until next year, but I su suspect that most people can get, uh, at least start reading up on it on your website, wheredowecomefrom.com, and I'll put that link on our site as well so it's easy for people to find it. Oh, that would be great. They will find a lot of information there. Yes, yeah, so Dr. I Jerry, it's been a pleasure speaking to you today. It was great. It was my pleasure, and, and thank you so much. You have a good day. You too. That was Dr. Jerry Verschuren, author of God and Evolution, Science Meets Faith. The book is published by Pauline Books and Media and will be available next year. In the meantime, you can learn more at wheredowecomefrom.com. That's where-do-we-come-from.com. I'm going to put that link on our website to make it easy for you to find it. Here now is our featured artist of the week, Ken Yasinski, with his song, Rain Me. Capture me, I'll capture me, hold 
That was Ken Yazinski with Rain Me. Ken Yazinski is the founder of Face to Face Ministries. Even though he is one of Canada's most sought-after Catholic speakers, what really draws his audiences is the love that Ken has for Christ and for the Church. He has spoken at conferences, rallies, parish missions, schools, retreats to youth and adults all across Canada and around the world. The core of his message is a challenge for people to realize their full potential in life. And that is the topic of his book, The Fullness of Purpose. And so I'm delighted to be joined now by Ken Yazinski. Ken, welcome to Salt and Light Radio. Thank you for having me. It's great to be with you. Yeah, good. So before I ask you about the book, I just how, how, do you, how does someone become a Catholic speaker? Well, that's a great question. I, 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 I don't know how it happens for other people. For me, it was one <laughs> step at a time. I, um, I had a renewal of my faith when I was 18 years old and um, finished up university, but had this burning desire to share my faith with other people. And as a result, was hired by five different Catholic churches to start up a senior and junior youth program. Wow. And I did that for two years, and within those two years, my phone started ringing, and um, just the word of mouth spread, and I was on the road just about every second weekend by 2002, and, and from there, things just kind of took so that, off. So that's what became face-to-face? Yeah, I think face-to-face, the word face-to-face, face-to-face ministries had its beginning in 2000, but by 2002, I was full-time on the road to and, and speaking. And what, why face-to-face? What's the reference? Um, face-to-face from, at that time, and I think my understanding as it, of this has evolved, but it really, for me highlights intimacy with God, that we don't seek His hand, we don't seek what God simply can do for us, but we can seek that intimate relationship with Him. And uh, I think it's also birthed out of the idea of holiness, that we are called to be in relationship with God, we're called to be a saint, and in the end, when the final curtain is drawn, in union with God in heaven face to face. Why uh, you, you've kind of given the answer, but I'm going to ask anyway. Why, why, why is the, the kind of your main message? Why does it have to do with kind of that reaching our full potential as as saints? Because, for me, and I think in the language of the church, that's the purpose of our life. And in my travels in numerous different Catholic uh, parishes, meeting wonderful people, I just. If, if they were asked the question, what is the purpose of your life? Many, I don't think, could answer that mm-hmm. or articulate that clearly. And if we don't know clearly why we've been created, how can we live out that potential? Mm-hmm. And so that's really, uh, um, that's the focus of our ministry, to challenge people to, to the purpose of their life, hol- holiness. And, and really also, that's the purpose of the book the full potential of our life to be a saint, to be in union with God. So do you, is, is it sort of uh, that unless we know where we're going, how do we know how to get there? Is that the idea? Sure, sure. And actually, in, in one of the beginning chapters of the book, I, I, I speak of this little analogy where my father bought, when I was younger, this brand-new shiny yellow canoe, and we took it up to the lake, and we met up with my uncle who bought a motorboat. Right. And... Through the works of the day, yeah, we yeah, ended yeah. up putting the canoe behind the motorboat. And using it as a, yeah. And destroyed year. it. <laughs> yeah. No, tell sorry. I know the story, but tell it because it's, it's funny. And, and, and the point was that if we, we, we use something in contradiction to its design, it breaks. We hurt ourselves. We hurt other people. And, and I used to think of ourselves in the same way. If we live in contradiction to our design, we hurt. We break. We, we hurt other people. We rob ourselves of the freedom that God wants to bless us with. So how does someone know, how do we know, because I can, I can hear you know, someone asking you right now, so how do I know what our design is? How, I mean, I know what the Bible says, but what if I don't believe that? How do that, I know? That, that, that's, that's a great question, and that's one of the things um, that's, uh, that I kind of unpack a little bit in the book in one of the chapters, is um, we need a clear, sure way of knowing truth in life. Uh, otherwise, we're just kind of left guessing and wondering, why am I here? Why am I created? And there's so many sources out there. There's so many speakers. There's so many different ideas about faith and spirituality. And I think one of the great blessings about being Catholic is what we don't have to guess. Mm-hmm. Jesus has established a church who leads his people in faith and morals. And if we look 
at the church and the language of the church, it's clear. The purpose of our life, uh, it, to quote maybe the catechism, the universal catechism of the church, yeah. it, there's like our purpose in life is to know, love, and serve God mm-hmm. and to share in His eternal glory forever. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I take great comfort in, in this, that I'm not trying to make this up. I'm not guessing at it, but what I'm doing and we're doing as Catholics is we're trusting in the teachings of Jesus expressed and communicated through our Holy Church regarding the purpose of our life, that, that is to be in union with God. Right. Um, I, when I started reading the book, um, and I, by the way, I, I really, really enjoyed it. It, 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 it made sense to me that this was the way to approach our faith um, to speak, if, if, when presenting it to someone who did not know about the faith, that it made sense to start, to not start with, you know, catechism or anything like that, or with theology, but start with, what's the purpose of your life? How, how, how do you know, you know, where you're going? What do you want to do with your life? How do you want to fulfill, you know, what, what brings you happiness? And that somehow, next thing you know, then you're explaining other deeper theological things that kind of, I didn't kind of expect. Mm. Is is that what you found in in your in your work that you've done, uh, presumably mainly with young people? That 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 this is where we need to meet people where they're at, and that is because everybody asks those questions: What is the purpose of life? What is the meaning of life? Why am I here? Mm-hmm. And then from there, that's a that's a perfect departure point to then teach them about. Well, you know, God, we're children of God, and then from then we follow Jesus Christ, and then you know, sacraments and theology and all that. Could, can follow naturally out of that? Sure, sure. And I think you really hit the key point there is, is the importance of putting the language of faith in a language that is accessible to the audience. Mm-hmm. If a person can't understand the message, it is useless to them. And so what our attempt is in the, in the book, but also when I'm on the road speaking, and, and in fact, I think the majority of the people I speak to now are, are, um, is, are adults, a lot of parishes, right. it's to put that into an accessible language and then also move from there into this is how we can live it out, which is um, uh, like a, a sacramental life, mm-hmm. a life engaged in the life of the church. I think of uh, the Sacrament of Reconciliation, 